Amos chapter number 7. Amos chapter number 7. What a blessing it is to be in the house of the Lord tonight. Amen. I'm thrilled to see you and I trust God's going to do a work in your heart and in mine this evening. I'm going to try to keep my sermon illustration here from rolling off and making a big racket hitting the floor, but I make no promises. Amen. No telling what may happen here. Amos chapter number 7. I was looking through my notes. I haven't really been keeping track, if I was to be honest. But I was looking through my notes trying to figure out how many parts we are into the book of Amos. And uh, if my calculations are correct, this is part 11 as we have studied through the book of Amos. But it's kind of best you don't even think about that or you'll get bored. Amen. It, uh, it's kind of like being in church. You know, you don't look at your watch. Amen. You'll, that you, you'll survive it if you don't look at your watch. But you look at your watch, that'll be it. Amen. All right. Amos chapter number 7. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Amos chapter number 7, verse number 1. This passage begins a series of visions that the prophet sees that speak to judgment upon Israel. Amos chapter number 7, verse 1. The Word of God says, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, And behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. It came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this. It shall not be, saith the Lord. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and did eat up a part. Then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. The Lord repented for this, this also shall not be, saith the Lord God. Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste. And I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to get to be in your house tonight. Lord, I pray that each and every heart would be touched by the holy, inerrant, inspired Word of God. Lord, I know that Your Word is sufficient for our heart's needs and for our life's needs, and I just pray that You'd help us tonight to approach it with a reverential and right attitude that we might receive instruction and help, Lord, from You. I pray that each and every heart that is here would be yielded unto You. Lord, You know what those hearts need. You know what my heart needs. So may we tonight see, not, Lord, in demonstration of man's wisdom, But in demonstration of the power of the Spirit of God, may we see a work done in our midst that we might be made more like Christ. And we'll be sure to thank you for it. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. In Amos chapter number 7, Amos is given three of a total of five visions that he will receive that lay before him the judgment of God upon Israel as a nation. I will not spend time, much time in review, but I would just simply remind you that Amos is a southern man. Somebody say amen to that. But he is preaching in a northern kingdom. Amos is a southern man from the wilderness far to the south of the land of Judah. He's not just a southern man, he is a country boy. He is a farmhand is the way he describes his upbringing and his vocation. He describes himself as a gatherer of sycamore uh, fruit and as a follower of the herd and of the flock. He describes himself as a husbandman, a man that is a farmer. God calls him way up into the northern part of the land of Israel to the metropolitan centers of places like Dan and Samaria and Gilgal and Bethel, places that were renowned for their idolatrous worship of Baal and of a false graven image unto Jehovah that was in the form of a golden calf. When he is called to go to this place, God lays upon his heart several important instructive warnings 
for the northern ten tribes, the northern kingdom, because God has the intention, if they do not repent, of permitting and pouring out upon them judgment that would ultimately lead to their complete annihilation. Uh, the northern ten tribes, after God was finished judging them, had no identity, no tribal identity left. Uh, the Assyrian uh, army, the Assyrian empire, were the instruments of God's judgment and wrath upon them. If the Lord will let us this week, we'll be teaching through the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah really has much to say and much to interact with the book of Amos. Jonah would have been a contemporary to some degree within maybe a generation or so of Amos. Jonah was scared of exactly what Amos was dealing with, that uh, the children of Israel were rebellious against God. God was going to judge them. And God was going to use the Assyrians to judge them, for they were the mightiest and most fierce of the empires or, or peoples, militaries on the world stage. I'd remind you that Jonah was right. Exactly what Jonah feared uh, transpired. The Assyrians, or Nineveh as a city, repented, turned towards God. God showed mercy upon that Gentile uh, military behemoth. And the children of Israel continued in their rebellion, and God used the Assyrians to destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And it is that event that is sort of within the scope of what Amos is talking about. God has used example in the first portions of the book of Amos, and He has pointed to surrounding nations and what He has done in those places, and He has sought to use example to draw Israel back unto Himself. He has sought to use exposition, prophecy, warning to draw them back to Himself. And now, uh, the Lord will, through Amos, use the tool of, uh, of uh, illustration, of expression, of example to try to arrest the attention of the children of Israel. And so he gives Amos five separate visions that communicate something about what he's doing in the land of Israel and about the impending judgment upon them. The first three we have read in our portion of Scripture tonight. Uh, I would describe them in this way, and I think they're easy to remember this way. The first vision deals with the plague of locusts. It's what we read in verses 1 through 3. The second uh, vision deals with the parched land. And we find that vision in verses 4 through 6. And then where I really want to spend some time tonight is a third vision, and it's the vision of the plumb line. And we find it in verses 7 through 9. Each of these, however, reveals to us certain instructive and important truths. So let's just take a few moments tonight and consider these three visions. We'll spend a little extra time when we talk about the plumb line. Look with me at verses 1 through 3, and let's think about this first vision of the plague of locusts. I see three notable things in it, but let's read our text. It says, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. Now, if you're a student of the Bible, if you've read the book of Joel, you know that a grasshopper, the word used for grasshopper here, often is associated with a locust. We know that we would say there is a difference between a grasshopper and a locust. And taxonomically speaking, in our way of thinking, that's true. Uh, but in uh, Bible times, a grasshopper was considered a phase or a stage of the development of a locust. You remember Joel talks about the palmer worm and the caterpillar and the canker worm and uh, the grasshopper and the locust and he describes these as the developmental stages of a locust. We just saw a few months ago a plague of locusts swarm across the Middle East. It is no small thing today, Brother Ken, despite all of our agricultural technology, despite all of our advancement, a plague of locusts today can decimate a community. Imagine in this time what it would have been like for a plague of locusts to move across a countryside, uh, eating and devouring and decimating everything inside. It was enough to bring a nation to its knees. However, I don't think that the Lord is talking about a plague of locusts in the way that we think of a plague of locusts when we read this passage. I think rather He is pointing uh, to an army that would move over the land of Israel as numerous as a plague of locusts, as destructive as a plague of locusts. I think this is probably figurative language pointing towards the coming Assyrian invasion over the land. You know, when the Assyrians came, they did come like a plague of locusts. They came all the way up to the walls of Jerusalem. 
Uh, you remember in the book of Isaiah uh, and in the Old Testament historical books, the record of, of the uh, man by the name of Rabshakeh uh, who stood at the gates of Jerusalem and cursed the God of Israel and sought to uh, worry and sought to harass and harangue Hezekiah, the Old Testament king of Judah. That was after the northern uh, ten tribes had been destroyed. And listen, they came all the way up to the gates of the holy city. They covered every portion of the land. I think this is what Amos is seeing with his mind's eye. And I think he is describing it as a plague of locusts. It says it came to pass. Well, let's back up a little bit. It says he saw uh, grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise for his small the Lord repented for this, it shall not be, saith the Lord. Now, there's a few things stick out to me. I don't know about you, but when I read that, there's a few things uh, that stick in my mind. First off, let me say this. It's entirely possible that these three visions that are laid forth are describing various degrees in which the Assyrians assaulted the northern tribe. There is an intensifying of the judgment of God. First, it's described as a locust. Then it's described as a great drought that burns the land. Then it's described as God Himself laying a plumb line on the nation and allowing destruction to come because they did not measure up. And when you look back through Israel's history, you can find times that you could probably correspond to these. I don't want to get lost in the weeds. I want to notice three things that are instructive to me. Number one, let me notice the rendering to the king. The Bible says, when did it happen? It was in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. Unless we wonder when that is, he says it was the latter growth after Brother Ken, the king's mowing. Now, it was not uncommon in this time in human history. Uh, one of the ways they paid their taxes would be uh, very often the first crop or the first cutting of the grass would go to the sustenance and provision of the king's household. And this was the case in the land of Israel when they'd cut the grass. Some of the other things they'd have to bring first fruits, of course, unto the Lord. But the grass, there was no ministration uh, in the temple work with the grass. And so that first cutting of the grass, that first mowing of the grass would belong to the king, and it would be a sort of tax. Now, somebody's going to say, Preacher, that's good, and I appreciate the history lesson, but what does that mean to me? Well, I don't know about you, but this is what I thought to myself, Brother Charlie. I thought this, you know, despite the judgment, the king would get his portion. Can I say this? God will get his portion out of your life. You remember what Paul said? He prayed that Christ would be magnified whether by life or by death. Can I tell you something? God's portion is the glory He derives out of our life. And He'll get glory out of our life one way or the other. I wish I could tell you that everybody I've ever known has given God glory by bending uh, their knee and bowing themselves and living a life that was a beautifying of the gospel and glorifying of the Savior. But that sadly is not the case. I've known people though that God had to through heartache and uh, sorrow and turmoil get glory out of uh, their life. But He did get glory. People looked at uh, their life and saw them as a tragic story of what happens when you walk uh, contrary to the law of God and the Word of God. But one way or the other, whether through exalting them or through abasing them, whether through advancing them or whether through confounding them, God got glory out of their life. Can I remind you, the New Testament tells us that one day every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Hey, it's, it's a lot better to go ahead and bow the knee now than just bow the knee in that day. But sooner or later you're going to bow. You know why? Because the king will get his portion. I see the rendering to the king. And then I notice the second thing. Now, if the first mowing belongs to the king, that means the second mowing. The second mowing belongs to who? It belongs to the people. That means that, Brother Ken, everything they got from that first mowing would not help them at all. They didn't live off of it. They didn't survive off of it. They didn't sell it. They didn't take it to market. They didn't feed it to their cattle or their livestock. All of that went to the king. So it was all the more important that they get that latter growth was not the king's mowing that God destroyed. It was the latter growth. Now, you might say, why is that, preacher? Because God knows how to get where we live at. God knows how to get to the things that matter to us. I see not only their rendering to the king, but I think about their reliance on the crop. They relied on that latter growth to provide for them. And that's what God destroyed. Uh, if God had destroyed the king's mowing, they would have said, well, ain't no big deal to me. I'm not a king. 
But God dealt with that which affected them, that which touched them. Listen, I'm not trying to paint God as, as a mean God. I'm not trying to get you scared of the Lord. I'm just saying this, God can get our attention when He needs to. God can get to that which matters the most to us if we make an idol out of it. So I see the reliance on the crop, but I see this, man, I'm thankful for it. I see the restraint of the consumption. Look at what it says there. Amos, when he saw this, he said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. And this is why he said, By whom shall Jacob arise? It's interesting the way he calls him Jacob. Jacob was the carnal name of Israel in the Old Testament or of the son of Isaac would be maybe the way that we would describe him, Jacob and Esau. Jacob was his given name, but it was his carnal name. It was his unregenerate name. The name Jacob means a supplanter. It means a trickster. And Amos, in making confession of the smallness and insufficiency and incapability of the people, uses that name. He calls him Jacob, the trickster, the deceiver. And he says, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. In other words, Lord, if you pour this out upon them and if you don't stop it, it's going to destroy them. Now you might say, well, preacher, would God ever do that to Israel? I'll go you one further. He's going to do it to them again. He's going to pour out judgment upon them so much that uh, were it not restrained, there'd be none that would be saved. The Bible says in the book of, uh, in the tribulation period that there'd be none that would be spared. And this is what Amos is saying. Lord, you're going to destroy them. They're small. They can't help themselves. They can't arise. And thank the Lord, man, this is beautiful. The Lord repented for this. Now, that doesn't mean the Lord changed His mind. That means the Lord changed His actions. And to a finite mind, it would look like God changed His mind. But Ken, God doesn't ever change His mind, but He changed His actions. He was going to destroy them. And in response to the intercession of Amos, He changed direction. And He said this, It shall not be, saith the Lord. And you know, I thought about this. You know, that restraint, God could have destroyed them. And in your life and mine, if we walk contrary to God, we can bring about destruction and judgment upon our lives. Uh, maybe a good New Testament word, a better word would be chastening. But listen, you can be chastened to death. I grew up my whole life believing I was about to be chastened to death. Amen? <laughs> you can be chastened to death, uh, especially by uh, an infinite God that loves you enough uh, too much to let you wreck your testimony in this life and will take you on to heaven instead of letting you make shipwreck and waste of your life. But the Bible says that he restrained. And I thought about why he did that. Number one, that restraint was brought on by prayer. Amos prayed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You know, I remember a time in the Old Testament when a man by the name of Elijah prayed. And that's who James is talking about when he talks about that righteous man. He's talking about Elijah. And Elijah, when he prayed and the windows of heaven were closed, but listen, he also prayed again and the windows of heaven were open. I'm glad prayer changes things. How helpless we'd be without prayer. How helpless we'd be without prayer. It was brought on by prayer, but it was also brought on by pity. You know why God did this? Because He loved Israel. Amos says, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. And it was that, the smallness of Jacob, the helplessness. And that reminds me of this, the Lord does pity us. He does love us, Brother Ken. He does care about us. You might say, if God cared about me, He wouldn't let this happen in my life. But that's no charge to lay at the feet of God. God's fully and completely illustrated His love for you. Go ahead and trust His love. He loves you. He pities you. He does not want to see you in pain. He does not want to see you suffering loss. But He's doing an eternal work in our lives. And when the time for pity arises, God is a piteous God. So we see the plague of locusts. And then we find a second vision that's described in verse number 4. Let's read it together. It says, Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, following the same pattern. And behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire. And it devoured the great deep, and did eat up a part. Then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. The Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord God. And you might be saying, well, preacher, it says this shall not be. But some of it happened. That's true. I think what Amos is seeing here is the land utterly destroyed in these ways. God's not saying, I'm not going to judge you, but He is saying, I'm going to spare you the extent of those judgments. What's being spoken of here? I think it's talking about the parched land. About the only thing as bad as a, as a plague of locust was a drought falling on the land. And it would seem to me, you might disagree with this, and, and there's room for that, I believe, but 
it would seem to me that this is figurative language that is describing a deep and abiding drought. Now, when it says he called to contend by fire, we might imagine fire falling from heaven. Let me say I have no problem imagining fire falling from heaven. On multiple occasions, fire fell from heaven. But I do not necessarily think that is what's being described because it says that it devoured the great deep and did eat up a part. A part of what? Well, I would think a part of the land. And I think what's being described is a scorching heat, a dryness and a drought that dries up not just those seasonal tributaries, not just those occasional streams, but even touches the great deep places, Brother Ken, that drought could never normally touch and dries those up and devours those and eats up a part of the land. Now, there's a lot we can say about it, but there's a few things I noticed. Number one, let me say this was a contending drought. Why did God do this? He called it to contend by fire. What does it mean to contend? It means to compete against. It means to strive against. It means to seek to master or to overcome. In fact, when people argue and fuss and fight, we call that being contentious. Now, this may seem weird or strange in our concept of God, but you know, all through the Old Testament, God basically would say this, I'm walking a certain way, and you can either walk with me or you can walk against me. And it's your choice. Amos himself pinned down that famous uh, quote under inspiration of the Holy Ghost, uh, shall two walk together, or can two walk together, except they be agreed in the book of Leviticus. God said consistently to the priests, don't walk contrary to me. In other words, if we start walking the wrong way, God's not going to stop and He's not going to back up. He's going to keep walking. And we'll either get run over or we'll get right if we find ourselves going in opposite directions of what God is doing. I'm not talking about a lost, broken world. I'm talking about a saved people. Hey, listen, the Bible says God resisteth the proud. What does it mean to resist? Well, it means to contend against them, to pitch your will against their will. Let me say God's will always wins out. God says He would contend with Israel. And you know, in our life, if we live in disobedience, things won't just not be okay. God will actively work against the things in our life that are contrary to Him. It'll feel as though things just will not work out, that they'll fall apart. Now, I'm not saying if you have adversity in your life, it's because God don't want you to do A, B, or C. But I am saying this, if God don't want you to do A, B, or C, He has the ability to make the road hard for you. The the Old Testament prophet said the way of the transgressor is hard. It's not easy. You ever looked at people and thought, why they got to make it so hard? Why do they have to live such a hard life? Why do they have to go the hard way? Why can't they go the easy way? I scratch my head looking at young people all the time making mistakes that we're in a room full of people that can tell you not to make that mistake. People that have been down that road and done that before. I look at young people younger than me that make bad mistakes that I made and I think to myself, why are you making life hard on yourself? But you see, when we are determined to do something, the way of the transgressor is hard. It's not easy. It's hard. And God says He would contend with Israel. He'd make the way harder on them. Why is He doing that? Because He knows what lies at the end of that road. He loves you enough to try to get your attention. So I see it was a contending drought. I noticed, number two, it was a consuming drought. It touched areas that nothing could touch. The great deep it consumed and swallowed up and devoured. Let me say again, I won't belabor it, but God can get to areas of your life that you think are untouchable. God can, you, you might think you're in the best health walking around uh, of anybody in the world and God can touch your health. You might think you're, you have the best financial stability of anyone uh, in, in, in six city blocks and God can touch your bank account. You might say, I've got the best marriage of anybody that I ever have known or ever will know and God can get to your marriage. I'm saying this, there's no area of your life that God can't use to get our attention and there's no area that is too deep but what the Lord can can touch it. So I see it was a consuming drought, and then I see it was a constrained drought. Thank the Lord, because again, by prayer and by pity, God restrained and God did not allow. You know why? Because His purpose was not destruction. His purpose was development. I'm thankful to report to you tonight, God doesn't have designs of destruction upon you and I. He's got designs of renovation on you and I. If he tears it down, it's so he can build it back the right way, not so he can leave it desolate. So I see the plague of locusts, 
and I see the parched land. Then in verse number 7, we have a third illustration. I want to spend a moment in this tonight. Verse number 7 says, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? So here we have a deviation from the pattern. He's asking Amos what he sees. He wants Amos to admit it. He says, I see a plumb line. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now, we're going to spend a little time. I, of course, at the close of the service this morning, I asked any a couple of the fellows to bring me a plumb line, and Taylor put this in my hands tonight. This, I guess, is his plumb line. Have you calibrated this, Taylor? You've got it calibrated? I hope so. And I want to I want to take a few moments and talk to you tonight about this plumb line. Before we get to what a plumb line is and what it's for and what I think it means in this passage, let me make a note of the Lord on the wall. God is very distinct in describing where He's at in the midst of this vision. Now, I can go ahead and tell you without giving any of the sermon away, God's going to measure His people Israel and He's going to find out that they come up short. And that's what the plumb line is all about. He's going to find out whether they're in plumb, whether they're in square, whether their life is in the right place. But notice how he describes himself. The Bible says that he stood upon a wall made by a plumb line. Notice number one, his position. He is positioned above the wall. The wall is a picture of Israel. And he as the Lord of Israel is pictured as standing above that wall, having dominance, having mastery over that wall. And can I say this? God, even tonight, stands above the rest of us. He's in a place to drop the plumb line. He is the Master. He is the Lord. Whether we acknowledge it or not, or whether we like it or not, or whether we embrace it or not, it does not displace who He is. Can I say, He's not standing on a wall tonight. He's sitting on a throne tonight. He is unmovable. He is unshakable. He is unconquerable. He is above all of us. And we're going to have to reckon with that truth. We may not like it, but it won't change it. The Lord's above you and I. He's the Lord of you and I. Uh, The Bible tells us He's the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. He's the God of gods. He's the Lord of lords. He's the King of kings. He does not need our permission uh, to be sovereign. He does not need our permission to be absolute in His authority. It is who He is tonight. So we better we better reckon with that. We better accept that He is who He says He is. And let me just put it real simply. We better accept that He's in charge. He's on top of the wall. I notice his position. Number two, I notice his perspective. From that high perch, he has the ability to look down that wall and see whether it's straight or not. Now, let me say this. The Lord didn't have to drop a plumb line to see if it was straight. He didn't drop the plumb line for his own sake. He dropped the plumb line for Amos's sake. He didn't have to drop a plumb line to tell whether it was straight. You know how I know? Because he's standing up the wall looking straight down it. And he's God. He knows all things. Can I say his perspective on your life and mine is absolute. He knows what's right and what's wrong. You know, the Lord on top of that wall could see every area, every angle of that wall. There was no part of that wall that was that was obscured from His view and from His vision. And it reminds me that there's no part of your life or mine that's obscured from His view and His vision. He stands on top of our lives, beholding how we're living and what we're doing, and His perspective is absolute. Then I notice a third thing. Brother Ken, I don't know if you saw this, but notice His purpose. Why is he on the wall? Well, he tells us that he's there to set a plumb line in the midst of his people Israel. In other words, we notice his position, it's above. We notice his perspective, it's absolute. And we notice his purpose. What's his purpose? His purpose is assessment. 
He's going to declare whether that wall is where it's supposed to be or whether it's not. Now, notice the Bible says this wall was built by a plumb line. Didn't have to say that. Could have simply said he was on a wall and had a plumb line in his hand and dropped the plumb line against the wall. But that's not what it says. It says he was on a wall that was made by a plumb line. You know what that's to tell us? It's to tell us it was made right the first time, but it might have started leaning. Can I say this? When God saved you, He saved you square and plumb. You was made 100% right with God. Didn't none of us start out the Christian life messed up. God cleansed and washed away all of our sins and made us a new creature in Christ Jesus. The question is not whether we as created crooked. It's whether we fell out of plumb in the years since we've been saved. Now, I'm not talking about not being saved. I'm not talking about losing our salvation. I'm not talking about not being fully saved. I'm just asking if you're still in plumb tonight. I'm just asking if your life is still in line with His standard. So I see the Lord on the wall. Then number two, let me take a moment tonight and think about the plumb line itself. And I said it this way in my notes. I see the Lord on the wall, but then I see the line with the weight. Now, if you are not a builder or if you've never worked in any kind of construction or anything like that, you might be asking, what is a plumb line? And there are many ways you can build them. This one is real fancy. Taylor, I guess, makes good money and buys nice tools. But uh, a plumb line is essentially nothing but a string with a weight on the end of it. You might be asking yourself, well, preacher, what good is a string with a weight on it? I'll show you. There's a couple ways you can use a plumb line. I'm not tall enough really to do this. You can forgive me. But if I wanted to build a wall and close this area in, and I needed to find out where to lay studs along this floor, and you say, where could we find studs, preacher? Right here. Amen. If I wanted to know where to put them, and I wanted to find out if what I got down here is in line with what's going on up there. If I want to find out if what I got down here is in line with what's going on up there. Here's how I'd do it. I'd take that plumb line, and I'd nail it, or I'd tack it, or I'd hold it, and I'd put it right in the center of that stud, and I'd let that thing drop to the ground and hang. And he'd create a plane from that upward realm to that downward location. And it would tell me whether or not I'm putting the studs in the right place. Now, there's another way. You might say, well, that's good, preacher, if you're building a fresh wall. But what if you just wanted to find out if a wall was straight? Well, here's what you'd do. You'd take that plumb line and you'd start at the very top and then you'd just let it slide down that wall. And you'd hold the position. And it would show us whether from bottom to top that wall was in plumb or standing up straight the way it's supposed to. So that's how you'd use a plumb line. And I'm sure there's men more capable than me in here tonight that have a hundred other ways to use it. But traditionally, that's what you're trying to find out. A plumb line does on the vertical plane what a level does on the horizontal plane. It tells you whether something's square, whether something's where it ought to be, whether something is in line with the pattern, and whether something is built correctly. Now, the Lord says this, I'm going to stand on the wall, Brother Ken, and I'm going to drop a plumb line on the nation of Israel, and I'm going to find out if they're where they're supposed to be. You say, preacher, what has that got to do with? Well, I don't know about you, and I don't know how to argue with a man about this, but all I can do is tell you what it reminds me of. You know, that plumb line sort of reminds me of the Word of God. That God has given us to show a man, Brother Ken, whether his life is up to the standard and is in line with what God expects out of it. Now, this, of course, is pretty much in keeping with Scripture. The Bible says this wall was made by a plumb line. And can I remind you that we were born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Every single one of us was born again of the Word of God. You know how we got in? We got in because we got our life in line with what God said about our life and about our condition. God said, hey, this is uh, you're a lost sinner. And we said, yep, we are. God said, you can't say 
save yourself? And you said, yep, that's true, Lord. God said, I sent my son to die on the cross to make payment for your sins because you couldn't pay yourself. And you said, yep, Lord, that's exactly right. And the Lord said, now, if you want your life to be right with me, you're going to have to uh, accept all of this as truth and acknowledge you can't save yourself. Ask me to forgive you and depend upon me to save you. And receive you. And we said, okay. I'm reminded of what Paul said about his salvation experience. He looked at that King Agrippa and he says, Whereupon, O King, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. What happened? The Lord dropped a plumb line on Paul's life. And Paul said, You're right, Lord, I'm out of square. And I will I will submit myself unto you. So the plumb line kind of reminds me of the Word of God. I, there's a few things about it that reminds me of the Word of God. Let me share them with you. Number one, it reminds me of the Word of God because it's anchored above. That's what makes a plumb line work, Brother Ken. You don't, you don't nail it to the floor and try to throw it up. Instead, you anchor it above. You know why? Because you want to know whether what's going on down here is in line with what's going on up there. And so there's a line that is dropped from that above place. And the fact that it's anchored above is what makes it helpful. The plumb line is helpful and meaningful because it's anchored above. In fact, it is only useful because of this fact. Let me say that again for all of God's people. It is only useful because of this fact. Amen? Let me say it to your flesh tonight. It is only useful because it is anchored above. It wouldn't be any use if it was anchored below. wouldn't be any use if it was anchored anywhere other than above. It is anchored above to a fixed position. And because of that, that makes it helpful and meaningful. That sort of reminds me of the Word of God. Because you see, it wouldn't be useful if it wasn't anchored above. It wouldn't be useful, listen, if it wasn't, Brother Ken, in a fixed position. Plumb line don't do you any good if you put it on a track and slide it all over the place. That's not what it's meant for. It's meant to be put in a fixed position so that you can tell whether something's in square. And it made me think of a few verses in the Word of God. I mean, this one jumped right out at me. Psalms 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heaven. In other words, the Word of God. Hey, men may argue about it down here, but there ain't no arguing about the inerrancy and preservation of the Word of God in heaven. It's settled in heaven. Amen. Men may stand around and wonder whether God's given a book down here, but they're not asking that question, Brother Ken, up in heaven. It's a settled matter up there. Forever, O Lord, Thy Word is its settled. It's in a fixed place. And where is it? It's settled above. It's got a fixed position that is above the rest of us. Let me tell you something. Men may argue about the Word of God, but it's settling my heart tonight. This King James Bible that I hold in my hand, that every bit of it, that uh, every bit of it, other than Mr. Schofield's notes, Amen, and the maps, that that part of it between Genesis and Revelation is the very Word of God. And let me say, if it wasn't the Word of God, it wouldn't be much help to us tonight. Man, if it was just a little bit of the Word of God and a bunch of the opinions of men, what good would that be? How do we know which is which? How do we know what we could believe and what we cannot believe? No, the fact is, the Word of God is only useful because it is anchored above, because it is the very Word of God, because it proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord. Do you remember what the Lord said in Matthew 4, 4? He looked straight at the devil himself and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The reason that plumb line is effective is because because it, it's fixed above and then it draws a line from above down. It proceeds from above and tells us whether things down here are where they're supposed to be relative to things up there. And that's what the Word of God does. It's the Word of God proceeding from heaven in a fixed place. Hey, listen, heaven and earth, Christ said, shall pass away, but my Word shall not pass away. It ain't going nowhere. It is a fixed thing. Peter called it the Word of God. And he said this, which liveth and abideth forever. He said, all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. He said, the grass withereth, and the flower thereof faileth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. It is fixed. Man can try to change it. Man can try to destroy it. Untold tyrants throughout human history have sought to burn it out, and stamp it out, and edit it out, and mark it out. But God has preserved His word. It is a fixed thing. So I thought about the fact that it, it's anchored above. And then I thought about another thing that reminds me when I think about this plumb line of, of the Word of God. And that's that it is always accurate. It is always accurate. I sort of joked with Taylor right there as we were starting. I said, you calibrate this thing. Now, if you don't know what a plumb line is, you thought, well, I hope he did. But if you know what a plumb line is, you chuckled. You know why? 
Because there ain't no calibrating. It's a metal weight on a piece of string. It's a simple, and it is the simplicity of that tool. This ain't going to be covered in knots. I hope you got more twine. It is the simplicity of this tool that makes it so useful. It can never be wrong. In fact, you know, Brother Ken, it wouldn't matter if this whole building, if the foundation began to sink, if one side of this building was three, four, five inches, a foot, a foot and a half off relative to the other one. And you know, you might sit here and your your plane of vision adjusts to the perspective you have in front of you. Uh, you might be sitting there and it might all look level to you and it might all look square to you. But if you take that plumb line and you drop that plumb line, it does not matter what the building around it is doing. It will always show you a perfectly vertical line. It's always accurate. It's never wrong. It can't be wrong because of the simplicity of it. The plumb line never lies. The wall may be crooked. The whole world may be crooked. But the plumb line never lies. The plumb line will always reveal a straight line and a crooked surface. You hear me tonight? The plumb line always reveals a straight line. And by extension, it will always reveal a crooked surface. It never has to be corrected and it never has to be calibrated. It never changes. It just reveals what is true. The rest of everything around you may look different, but this thing will always tell you what's true. I said everything around it may change, but this plumb line will always tell you what's true. That's part of the reason. I don't know about you. I, I'll tell you a little story. I've been doing a little bit of work on my old pickup truck. And um, I replaced, I won't go through all the boring stuff about it, but I replaced the pitman arm. And uh, I kind of replaced it. I replaced it to the point where it's well enough to take it to a shop and let somebody that knows what they're doing replace it. Somebody say amen there. But um, <laughs> I, I was replacing that pitman arm. Now, here's what a pitman arm does. You listening? I, to be real simple, a pitman arm connects your steering wheel to your wheels. That's the simplest way I can say it. So that when you turn your steering wheel, it turns your wheels. And I changed, Brother Ken, that pitman arm on that old pickup truck. And one of the things that I neglected to do was make sure that my steering wheel stayed straight when I took my pitman arm off and replaced it with another one. So after a few hours laying in the grease and, and the sweat and, and me and God talking a lot about that pitman arm, I finally got it wrestled back on there. And uh, I got in my truck and I looked down... And my steering wheel wasn't like this like it should have been. It was like that. And I was so mad, me and God had to talk some more about that pitman arm before I was ready to get out of the truck because I knew what that would mean. I knew it would mean I would have to get out and tear all that apart so that I could fix it and set it straight. That steering wheel, I could ignore it. I could pretend it wasn't different. But at the end of the day, the only way I could get it right would be to get out, undo it, and fix it. Can I say one of the reasons people get mad about the Word of God is they build their life on sand. They build their life on delusions. Uh, They spend their whole life building things up in a certain way. And then the plumb line of the Word of God is laid against their life and shows that they built a crooked life. And the only thing left to do is one of two things. Now, they can either fix the wall or they can throw away the plumb line. So you know what a lot of people do? They throw away the plumb line. Or they try, they try to lean it a little bit, or they try to change the weight of it a little bit. You know why? Because it just, it never lies. Everything could be disoriented, but that plumb line is always accurate. And that sort of reminds me of the Word of God, because that's how the Word of God is. Uh, listen, the Bible says in Psalms 119, 160, Thy Word is true from the beginning. That'd be enough right there. I got a lot more verses to read, and I'm bound, and I'm going to read them, but that'd be enough right there. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. The psalmist said in Psalms 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. That's pretty, that's pretty absolute, isn't it? It's perfect, converting the soul. Unless we wondered what he meant, he went on to say the testimony of the Lord is sure, just in case we wondered, making wise the simple. And if you still got any questions, he said in verse 8, the statutes of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. And maybe you thought you didn't hear it right, so he went on to say the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then, lest there be anybody left that doesn't know, he says the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. You know why men hate the Word of God? Because it always shows whether a surface is crooked 
or straight. That's why they hate it. And there's a lot of crooked surfaces in this world that we live in. But it's always right. Always right. Psalms chapter number 12, verse 6 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. God will preserve His Word. Amen. In other words, this thing ain't just right today. It'll be right when the worlds are on fire. The plumb line will still be true. And you know that would be true. If the whole world was on fire, a plumb line would still work right. If they dropped an EMP and every piece of electronics that you own uh, fell apart, the plumb line would still work right. (laughs) If all of your fancy digital levels and and digital lines that you've got, I'm not against them, God bless you for being able to afford them. If the batteries went dead, if they broke, the plumb line will still be right. See, if everything falls apart, the plumb line will always be right. The only way, in fact, that you could make the plumb line wrong because everything's relative to the inspired Word of God. This world was created, how? By the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed. You know the only way the plumb line could be wrong is if God lied. If the very gravitational laws that govern our world that were created and enforced and and, and injected into our existence by the holy creative Word of God, the only way the plumb line could lie to you would be if gravity lied to you. The only way gravity's going to lie to you is if God lied to you. Because the world's framed by the Word of God. I, I'm just I'm just talking tonight. I ain't even really preaching. I'm just talking about what the Word of God is. And I, I'm just saying tonight that it's always accurate. It never lies. And then I thought about a third thing. and I'm not going to say a lot about this. But I, I, it reminds me of the Word of God because it's, it's absolutely authoritative. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, because it is always right, it is always authoritative. If something is off, let me ask you a simple question. If you drop a plumb line on the wall, if something's off, do you move the plumb line or do you move the wall? I said, do you move the plumb line or do you move the wall? But preacher, you don't know how much trouble it is. If you want the wall to be straight, you'll move the wall. But preacher, you don't understand how much work I've done building. If you want it to be straight, you won't move the plumb line. You'll move the wall. If you care about what's true... You won't move the plumb line. You'll move the wall. (laughs) I was thinking to myself about all the time I wasted wrestling with that truck and how because that dumb steering wheel was turned half a turn, I'd have to spend hours undoing it. But it don't matter. Because if I want it right, I'll do it. I said if I want it right, I'll do it. People might look at it and say, but preacher, you don't know what it cost me to move the wall. Yeah, but if you care about the truth, you won't move the plumb line. You'll move the wall. In fact, there's no point in having the plumb line if you're going to move it to where you want it anyway. You hear me tonight? There's no point in even having the plumb line. You might as well throw it in the garbage. Quit pretending like you care whether it's plumb or not if you'd move the plumb line instead of moving the wall. Can I say this? If we'd move the Bible before we'd move us, we ought to go ahead and just quit pretending like we're Bible-believing Christians. If we'd rather change what God said than change how we're living, we might as well go ahead and just throw off the name Christian and quit pretending like we believe the Bible is the Word of God. Because you don't move the plumb line, you move the wall. Here's the question tonight. i got more sermon. I'm not going to preach it. But here's what God says about it. The psalmist said in Psalms 119, I thought on my ways and turned my feet unto thy testimonies. He says, I looked at the plumb line and I was out of square. I was out of plumb. So what did I do? Psalmist says, I moved the wall. James says this in James chapter 1, verse 21. He says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. He says, But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. You know what that is to be a, a, a hearer only? Is, Brother Ken, to lay the plumb line to the wall, see it's crooked, and then just say, oh, never mind, I'll leave it. To look at it and to say, well, that's crooked, and take that plumb line and slide it against the wall and say, now it looks better. That's to be a hearer of the Word, but not a doer. He says, but be doers of the Word, and not hearers only. Here's why, deceiving your own selves. You know what would happen if you moved that plumb line? You might trick everybody else into thinking it was plumb, but in your heart of hearts, you'd know it wasn't. You'd know it wasn't. 
The whole purpose in it would just be to deceive yourself. You'd just be trying to pacify your mind. It says, For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty... I said that plumb line. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. You know what you'll find out? If you ignore that plumb line, won't nothing else in that house be square? It'll always be off by at least as much as that first wall or that foundation is. You'll be forced to build crooked the rest of your days if, if you won't fix that wall. You'll be forced. Everything in your life won't be in square. Nothing in your life will be in line. That's why it's so important we don't just move the plumb line but that we fix the wall. Can I ask you a question tonight? If God dropped the plumb line on your life, would He find out that you're in plumb? Would you have to admit there's some areas of your life that the plumb line would reveal are crooked? When God saved you, He saved you plumb. He saved you square. Somewhere along the line, you started to lean. You started to build a little crooked. You looked at a crooked foundation of some area of your life and said, instead of fixing that, I'll just fake it. and I'll just pretend like it's okay. But the day has come and God has dropped a plumb line on your life. Is there some area of your life that's out of plumb? What are you going to do about it? Are you going to move the wall? Or are you just going to try to move the plumb line? If you're going to move the plumb line, you might as well just throw it away and quit pretending like you care what the plumb line says in the first place. But you know what I think would be better? It might be a lot of work. It might be quite disruptive. But you know what I think would be better? If you just go ahead and start taking that wall apart and building it back the right way. Let me put it as simply as I can. Instead of ignoring what God's Word says, instead of trying to change what God's Word said, you know what would be better? Is if you just say, whatever it takes, I'm going to obey God, I'm going to submit myself to the Lord, and I'm going to let my life be right with Him. I'm going to get my life in line with Him. There's coming a day God's going to drop a plumb line on all of us. The judgment seat of Christ, Brother Ken, He's going to drop a plumb line on all of us. You say, preacher, I'm fine living crooked. Well, one day you won't be. Boy, one day you won't be. One day that plumb line will be dropped on your life. Let's get her square tonight instead of putting it off for another day. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar's open. I'm not going to ask you any more questions. I'm just going to say, if God touched your heart, I hope you'll obey Him tonight and that you'll come and meet with Him in this altar. Father, I love You and I thank You for this time that You've given us. I pray that You'd bless this invitation. May it glorify the Lord Jesus. It's in His name we ask.